Okay, who is the greatest person that you have ever met in your whole life? Who is the most honorable, the most prestigious person, if you think about it, who is the greatest person that you have ever encountered? Who's the person, greatest person that you have ever met? I remember as a, a very little child learning that Prince Andrew himself was not only going to come to Inverness, but I learned that he was going to come to our school and our class was chosen to meet Prince Andrew. And let me tell you what a fuss was made about this. Like he got a big build up. I was just a little child, but I still remember it vividly uh, that we were promised greatness. And then what happened? Well, then a couple of months later, the day arrives and the doors open and there, I remember I'm a little child, and there the doors open, and it's Prince Andrew, and I couldn't have been more disappointed. I thought, it just looks like a teacher. What an anticlimax it was. This, this was greatness. Well, friends, in this portion of scripture that we've read, and that we're going to study this morning, you and I are confronted with true greatness. And we're going to see this morning as we look at these verses here of what true, proper, real greatness consists. So because of that, I'd say to you, let's not delay for a moment and let's get straight to the text here and consider what God has to say to us about greatness this morning. So You know what I'm going to ask you to do by now, I'm sure? I'd ask you to please have your Bibles open. What is it? Mark 9 and verse 30. Let's notice first of all here the priority that Jesus places on discipleship. That's the first thing we need to establish here. The priority that our Lord places on discipleship. What does that mean? Well, I, I love the image that we've got at the start of this portion of scripture. We're told, don't you love it? We are told that at this point in his ministry, that Jesus is traveling, but he's doing it kind of covertly. Do you notice that? That he's, he's traveling at this point. It's almost kind of incognito. Look at verse 30. It says that they pass through Galilee, so that the day is Jesus and his disciples. How did they do it? Look, isn't it unusual? Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Yes, you see what I mean? It's secret, isn't it? It's kind of covert. Now, the commentaries in this portion of scripture, they suggest a few reasons why it might have been like that. Like they suggest, one, that Jesus is traveling covertly so that he doesn't get distracted, you know, on the way to Jerusalem. Or they say that he's doing this, trying to travel secretly to avoid the opposition that he received the last time that he was in Galilee. Or they say that he's doing this, traveling secretly, because these people have had their chance. That he's been in Galilee, he's preached the gospel, and he's not going to do it again. But here's, here's what I can't get my head around. Why are the commentary, commentaries having that discussion at all? Because you can see it in the text, can't you? Look at it. Like the text specifically tells you and I why Jesus was traveling covertly. Look at verse 31. 
Jesus didn't want anyone to know. It's like, hush, hush, let's, let's travel silently. Why? Because he was, because he was teaching the disciples. And don't you agree with me? That's a remarkable thing to read. Like, how would you expect Jesus to act? What would you expect him to do when he goes into Galilee? Can I tell you what I would expect him to do? Expect him to go into Galilee, find a market square, begin to preach, you know, stand up and preach the good news to the lost. Wouldn't you expect that? You know, the kingdom of God is near preach to the unconverted souls. Wouldn't you expect that? And yet, what have we got? We've got Jesus keeping everything quiet here in order to, to listen to me, in order to teach existing believers more about himself. Isn't that, don't you agree with me? Isn't that a remarkable thing, that priority from Jesus to teach existing believers? I, I, I think we, we learn a crucial lesson there in a couple of different ways. One for the church. Because if you've been a Christian for a number of years, or you've been part of a church in the United Kingdom or the Western world for a number of years, you know what it's like. You know that you know, such are the, the struggles for the church in the modern age, such as the kind of declension that we see in the church and Christianity, what is the temptation that we face as a church? It is to put every little bit of energy and every little bit of effort in just notching up an, another conversion story. It's not right. All of our effort, all of our time, all of our energy and just, just trying to get our hands on an initial profession of faith from somebody, right? Isn't that the sort of, it's not what we're about. Isn't that the temptation? Don't please get me wrong. The church must be on mission as part of what we are, as part of our DNA. But do you see the problem? What was it that the Lord Jesus called for from the church? Was it go and get that conversion story? Go and get that initial profession of faith? Was it that or was it more? Was it not go and make disciples? Do, do you see it? The building up of believers. It is also an essential element of church life, is it not? So there's a lesson there for, for, the, for the church. But here's the thing. Is there not a lesson for, for you and I personally here? Because is this not true? Think about this. Like how do we think about the Christian life? When we think about our Christian walk and the way that we live as Christians, what, how do we think about it? And don't we often think like this? Well, we're saved, so that's the kind of most important thing out of the way. And we're, the Christian life, what is it? Well, we're saved, so we go to church. We pray sometimes. Uh, we maybe once or twice throughout our lives we, we talk to people about Jesus. Uh, and we try not to fall into too much sin. That's the Christian life. Is that not how we think about it sometimes? They compare that, contrast that to, to Jesus here. What is his priority for those 12 men? What's his priority for the belief? What does he do here? He teaches them. Do you see what God wants from your life? Do you see what it is? He wants from us lifestyles of learning 
That's what he wants from you and from me, to give ourselves to, 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 to being taught and to studying the things of God, the great, the big things of God. How do we do that? Well, I was thinking about this earlier on. If my uh, old minister was here, he would stand up the front and he would say, well, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. And it's not, is it? To grow in grace, what do we do? We join a congregation and we give ourselves to the discipleship of that church and those elders. And we avail ourselves of as much Bible teaching as we possibly can, don't we? Morning and evening on the Lord's Day and we study the scriptures at church, but we also do it in the home. You see the lesson, don't you? Listen to me. Evangelism is going to be done and done well. You see what Jesus wants here? He wants the building up of the people of God. So we see the priority that Jesus places on discipleship. A second thing that we see in this portion of scripture, though, is the problem of pride in the Christian's heart. The problem of pride in the Christian's heart. Um, there's a set change isn't there, as we move along in this portion of scripture, the set changes. We were out on the road, weren't we? We were out on the road with the disciples and Jesus. That's where we were. Do you see how the set changes? We've got to now imagine the scenario inside a first century Jewish house. Okay, so you got it? We're inside this house in Capernaum. You see what happens inside the house? Jesus lifts the lid on the disciples' sin doesn't he? Because out on the road, they were unwilling to talk to Jesus about his death. Jesus mentions his death. They don't want to talk to him about that. And instead, what was it the disciples want to talk about? You answer me that. Have a look at verse 34. What were the disciples talking about? Have a look at verse 34 with me. Do you see it? Wow. Something, isn't it? They're arguing about which of them was the greatest. Let me um, ask you, what do you do you think about that? It's quite an unusual thing to read, isn't it? The disciples arguing about greatness. Does it appall you? It is shocking, isn't it? Disciples arguing about greatness. Can I, can I just give you a, 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 just a few reasons why, although it's shocking and it's, and it's an appalling thing, let me give you a few reasons why it's maybe not all that surprising that they were arguing about greatness. Because this arguing, this bickering over honor, maybe it's not all that surprising in light of the transfiguration. Remember we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, the transfiguration. Now, do you see what I mean by that? Like, um, I've said from the pulpit before, I think a couple of times, that I find my children uh, very predictable little human beings. My children are very, very predictable. Uh, for example, if I take my eldest, Colin, if I take him out to a coffee shop uh, for a treat, I know exactly how his little sister is going to respond to that. You, you can probably guess. Her nose is going to be a little bit out of joint by this. There's going to be some huffing and puffing and sulking. Because why? Why? Because he got to go and I didn't get to go. You understand, I'm sure. Is that not what perhaps is going on in Mark chapter 9? I mean, you see it, don't you? Think about it. Some of those disciples 
okay, they didn't know what went on up that mountainside with Jesus just a couple of days ago. They didn't know the, the details, but what do they know? All they know, some of them, is that they didn't get to go. We didn't get to go with Jesus. Okay, Peter got to go, and James got to go, and John got to go, but we didn't get to go. So do you see it? Maybe that is why there's this jostling, this competing for honor and position amongst the twelve here, you see? I'll give you another reason, though. Why is it not surprising to see them fighting like this and arguing like this? Well, because of the culture of the time. Um, Because of Marianne, and because of Rachel... And because of a number of others in the congregation, uh, some of us have been involved in weddings uh, in the very recent past, haven't we? And even if we haven't been involved in weddings, we know this about weddings, that the seating arrangements at a wedding meal can be a very contentious thing, can they not? It can be a sort of veritable minefield, just trying to work out, can they sit with them or who will we sit with whom? You see? Now, what we've got to understand is that that there was an obsession in the first century Jewish world. Not the seating arrangements at weddings, but the seating arrangements in heaven above. See, the Jews thought that everyone in heaven is going to be seated according to how much honor they are due. But they also thought this, that that should be reflected here on earth. So you see it in the first century Jewish world, if there's a public meeting or a worship service, the Jews would seat people according to how they, how much honor or how great the Jews thought they were. And so you see what's happened, do you? That there is perhaps influencing or affecting the disciples' thought. And they're walking along here and they're thinking about the transfiguration. They're thinking about glory. They're thinking about just now thinking, how much honor? How much honor are we due now? And then let me give you another one. This isn't surprising, this awful behavior. Because it is a reflection of the sinful heart of man. And this time you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? The fact that you and me, we do this. You and I, we do this. We are capable of the same horrendous pride as Christians, are we not? Now you see what I mean, don't you? We compare ourselves to the other people in our lives, or ah, worse. We compare ourselves to the other people in our congregation, don't we? And we do it behind their backs, but we also, we also do it very favorably to ourselves. Don't we always? We look at these people, and we, we, we assess that the way that they live and we assess that the way that they act in church or the way that their devotional lives function. We look at that and, and what do we conclude? We conclude that we are more spiritual than they. That we are more righteous than they. That we are greater than they. And it manifests itself in the same way as this, doesn't it? What does that mean for our churches? We end up doing that. Like we end up, we end up jostling and competing for position in the Christian church, in our congregations, don't we? We, we end up church life. What does it become? It becomes our desperate seeking of recognition from other Christians. 
Do you see, we look at the disciples here and they're fighting for greatness and we dismiss them and we think it's awful and why is it not surprising? Because you and I are guilty. We're guilty of the very same sin. So we see a priority in the discipleship. We see a problem. A third thing that we see here, though, is a principle. So it's a principle. And get this, a principle about how true greatness is established. Now, let me do this, would you please? Um, Let me draw your attention to what maybe seems like an insignificant detail in the text. And it is the posture of our Lord. So would you look at that in verse 35? Tell me the posture of Jesus at this point. He sits down. Is that just an insignificant detail, wonder? Um, he sit down. Well, if you cast your mind back uh, to your school years and to your schooling, maybe you'll be able to see why Jesus sits down here. Uh, maybe your teacher didn't do this when you were in school. My teacher certainly did this. If she had... I can see if she had a very important uh, matter to tell the class, not just your run-of-the-mill important stuff, but something really crucial, what my teacher would do, she wouldn't stand at the front by the blackboard as normal. No, she would do this. She would get all the class, all these little kiddies, to stand up and come over to one particular area in the class, usually the reading corner, and she would get all the kiddies to sit down in the corner, gather together, all sit together. And what, what would she do then? She would get one of these tiny little chairs you get in primary school and she would take it over amongst the kids and the teacher would sit down and she would say, class, shh, I've got something really important to tell you. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here? You see it? Like he has a crucial lesson to teach the truth about the Christian life. Something absolutely vital. So what does he do in that house in Capernaum? Says, guys, over here. And he gathers the, the 12 men in together. And what does he do? You see it. He sits with them and he begins to tell them this crucial lesson. You see it? Now, if we're saying that Jesus is sitting here because he's got something vital important to say, well, what is it? <laughs> What is it? Well, in light of their appalling discussion about honor, Jesus here wants to teach the church how true and proper greatness is discerned. And I, I, I want you to think about this, please, if nothing else. I want you to see how revolutionary this lesson is. I want you to think about just now just how contrary God's values are at this point to the thinking and the values of this age, the age in which you live. In fact, let's think about it like this. Let's say at the end of the service, you go home, and you speak to one of your friends, and let's say you ask them, who do you think is great in this society? Like, Come on, worthy of honor, who is it? You ask your friend, who do you, who do you think is great? What answers are you going to get? I, I was thinking about this. If I was to ask my wife this uh, just now, if I was to ask her who's great, I know the answer she would give me because she is in the middle of watching The Crown 
on Netflix. So if I was to ask her, who do you think is great? I'm pretty sure she's going to say, the Queen is great. Okay, and maybe your friends would go for that. The Queen or, I don't know, Prince William because of their birth and who they are. Maybe your friends would say, Cristiano Ronaldo is great. Or Beyonce is great because of their talents or the gifts. Maybe they would say, no, 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 no. Steve Jobs was great. Or Bill Gates is great because of their vast influence. You can see it. You can see it. These are the sorts of answers we're going to get. And friends, what is this lesson? How is it that the awesome, sovereign God of the universe views greatness? Do you see that it comes down to one solitary word? The greatness is measured in humble Christian Are you not with me? Is that not one of the most revolutionary ideas? Isn't it service? What God wants from you and from me is not just us pretending to love our brothers and sisters and pretending maybe that we pray for them. What does he want from us? He wants us to place ourselves under our brothers and sisters in humility and to serve. Let's serve each other with, with, with all of our hearts. That's it. Now, we've got to be practical. Can't just leave it like that. I mean, it's so important. We've got to be practical here. How do we do that? If that's what Jesus wants, how do we do it? Listen, we can start by asking a question. Like we can go to the deacons of this congregation. We can go to the elders of this congregation. And we can ask them, this is what scripture says. How do I obey it? You know, can you help me to help the congregation? How do I serve the people of London City Presbyterian Church? Do you see it? We can start just with a question. But man alive, we can do more than that. I mean, can't you and I serve on the Lord's day itself? Like I'll say to you, as the minister of this congregation, a transient congregation like this, there are innumerable areas of necessary service in this place, week in, week out, week in, week out. You can come to this place early on a Sunday. You can help set up this church. You know, you can, you can do the basic things, join a, a rota even, and serve tea and coffee to, to your brothers and sisters. You can welcome people into the life of the church with a, with a smile, with grace, and with love. No, we can take this out of this building. And we can take it into our everyday lives. Can we not do that as Christians? We can open our homes to the lonely of this congregation. We can serve food. We can get to know our brothers and sisters and establish the needs that they have, what they are. But do you see the lesson that is so important to the heart of our Lord that he sits... Do you see what it is? God values not your wage. Values not your lineage. Doesn't. God values in his people is the way, is the manner in which we serve. And then last, we see a picture of this lesson. A picture of this lesson. And we see it in a little child. Now maybe... Um, if you're following the reading, when Johnny was reading out the text, maybe there's a detail at the end of this portion of scripture that you find 
peculiar, a bit odd. Is there, like, hopefully you see what it is. So you've got Jesus and you've got the men seated in a room. And then follow me in this. And Jesus looks up. What does he see? He sees a little child, a child of the household. Let's say a toddler, okay? And the toddler's running around the room, causing a bit of chaos, Okay, so what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus gets up, goes to the, the little child, takes it by the hand lovingly, says, come with me for a moment. And he takes the child and he puts it in the middle of the 12 disciples. Okay, ah, it's not finished though. Notice it. What does Jesus do next? Scoops up the little child in his arms, lovingly holds the little kid and takes the child to himself in a loving way. Are you wondering what on earth that is about? If so, to understand it, you've got, to, you've got to appreciate how children were viewed in the ancient world. Like, it, it, it's not like it is today. You probably agree with me that we pander a little bit too much to our kids today, do we not? Like, we probably spoil our children in the 21st century. Believe me when I, when I tell you it wasn't like that in the ancient world. Like kids, these days, they were, they were viewed as the lowest of the low. Like just subhuman, almost subhuman, like as though they had not fully arrived into humanity yet. So do you see the message from Jesus? Now don't get it wrong. Jesus is not saying to the twelve disciples, be like the kid. Is that what you're thinking? He's not saying that. Because what does he do? He scoops up this child in his arms. He's saying to the twelve, be like me. Be like me as I embrace and as I welcome the undervalued. Did you see what Jesus is doing? He's building on the message he's just given. That what God wants from his church isn't just service. It's more than that. What does he want? He wants service of the marginalized. Like he wants his people. God desires you and I to be loving and caring. Who? The undervalued. The people who are unloved. The people who are on right on the edges of society. That's who Christ wants us to love. And I'll tell you, that's why we've got these silly Christmas shoeboxes around the place. You see what I mean? Like, you, you, are we thinking here, well, why are we doing Blysweet again? It just seems to be this meaningless routine. Or are we just doing it? You doing these Blysweet things just to make yourself feel better towards Christmas? Is that, is that what it is? It's not that. Like, we're doing this. Why? Because God delights in his people serving the needy. And I'm telling you, it can't stop at Blythewood. Like, next year, as a congregation, you and I, we've got to be regularly, freaking, frequently reaching out to the people who are on the fringes of society. Why? Because we are to show those people, demonstrate to those people, the love and the care that God has for them in their lives. And I'll end with this. I'll end with this. Why should we bother? You're seeing there that Jesus places all of this emphasis in Christian service. What is the motivation 
for you and I actually altering our lives and doing this stuff. Do you see what it is? That in Christian service, you and I are following in the footsteps of Jesus. We do this sort of stuff. We are following an example that our Lord has set for us. And, and maybe you're new to church. And maybe you're looking at me this morning and you're thinking, but Jesus didn't serve. You think, but he's exalted son of God. I mean, he's in glory in heaven. What are you saying? Jesus served. Like, I could speak to you about feeding the 5,000, couldn't I? I could speak to you about a washing of his disciples' feet. But surely there's something much more fundamental because how did this section of scripture begin? It began with a reminder to the twelve of what Jesus was about to do for them. That yeah, he would covertly go through Galilee, but was he bound and where was he going? Friends, he was going to Jerusalem. Why? Because for them, for his people, he was going to lay down his own life. He was going to die, provide that great sacrifice and rise again. The, the Messiah, the Christ, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I'm saying to you, do you not see that? Is that not the greatest act of service there has ever, ever been? And I, I, I hope today that the Holy Spirit prompts you, if you've never done it before, I hope that the Holy Spirit prompts you to trust and believe in Jesus today. But I have a bigger hope than that. I hope that then from that point, that the Spirit of God prompts you to a life of learning and to a life of service. Why? All for the glory of the one, the only one who is truly great. That we would do these things, actually do these things. All for the glory of God. Let's pray.